things that other people believe actually make a world of difference. And if you're going in and your your impulse is to paper over those differences, you're going to be frustrated at every turn. It's much better to, to dive in and be like, okay, what do you believe and how is that different from what I believe? And let's talk about that, whether it's intra-Muslim or intra-Christian or, or across religions. That's where we need to go, I think, in general. This is Crossing Phase, the podcast featuring a Christian and a Muslim talking religion and politics. Your co-hosts for this adventure are me, Matt Hawkins, a once policy director for the Southern Baptist Convention, and my friend John Pinna, former director of government and international relations of the American Islamic Congress. Show notes, bios, and all our social media links are available at crossingphase.com. We're also available for your listening at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. Today, our special guest is Robert Nicholson, co-editor of Providence, a journal on Christianity and American foreign policy, and president of the Philos Project. Both are organizations that we'll learn more about shortly. Robert holds a bachelor in Hebrew studies from Binghamton University and a JD and an MA in Middle Eastern history from Syracuse University. So he knows of what he speaks, and he's also a formerly enlisted Marine. Robert Nicholson, welcome to Crossing Phase. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. John, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me again. <laughs> As always. The show. I appreciate it. You know? <laughs> uh, now, I'm flanked by two New Yorkers here, uh, so hopefully they'll balance each other out. But uh, <laughs> I just wanted to set that precedent here that uh, I'm, I'm outnumbered once again by New York contingent. So uh, we got to get some more diversity on this podcast, John. I know we do. But, well, I'm, I'm happy. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> And then, um, but maybe, you know, we can get into, uh, talk a little bit about the Philos project. Why don't we talk about that? I, when I, when I heard it, I go, what, what is he baking and, and how much Philo dough does he go through in a day? <laughs> that was a, that was the first thing I got. That's great. We got a baker on, but, uh, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about that, about the project and who you are and what you're doing and, and maybe cause I, I was excited to read about the, the, the Philos project and, and, uh, and it's, you know, endeavor into the Middle East. Sure. Well, thank you, John. And thank you, Matthew. This is such a cool concept for a podcast. I'm really honored to be on it and to, to speak about some of these things. So I founded the Philos project, uh, five years ago, a little more than five years ago. We're based in New York city. We're a nonprofit. The mission is, uh, to promote positive Christian engagement in the Middle East and, that obviously implies that there's negative Christian engagement in the Middle East. And that's sort of why I started the organization is that uh, a lot of people I knew, uh, Christians, but not only, didn't really understand this part of the world, even as we as Americans are so deeply enmeshed in it. And in some ways, the uh, mission is my attempt to impose my own spiritual journey on other people to be to be frank about it i was i was baptized catholic and my mother became some kind of evangelical when i was mm -hmm. young uh we weren't all that churched i didn't really understand christianity but by the time i was 12 or 13 i was pretty sure it was definitely the religion uh, of dumb people and yeah. completely distanced myself from it for over a decade and only kind of came back to it uh, in my mid-20s through a series of, of strange events and had this sort of powerful encounter with with scripture. And really this, this light bulb went off in my head that this 
Christianity that I had been reading about was actually not an American religion after all, which is kind of the way that I conceived of it. And it wasn't even a European religion. It was a Middle Eastern religion. And this was right between uh, 9-11 and our invasion of Iraq. And I was starting to think, okay, well, if this is a Middle Eastern religion and I'm becoming more and more interested in what it has to say, what does that mean for the way that I think about this part of the world today? And so long story short, all of those ideas came to fruition in 2014 when we founded Philos and we're, we're trying to sort of make this connection, right? People from the U.S., people from the West um, with this this part of the world, which is the cradle of history and where all of these great uh, world religions were formed. Yeah. Well, I'd certainly commend uh, to our listeners the Philos Project. Uh, their links will be up on our website for the show notes, but it's philosproject.org. Um, I've been really impressed, as John has, uh, with his uh, newer uh, exposure to Philos, but uh, I've been really impressed with uh, Philos's work um, over the last few years. Uh, so uh, well done, uh, Robert, and may your tribe increase. We want to get into uh, a couple articles you wrote recently, Robert, um, which is kind of the reason um, for us inviting you on. Uh, although, but obviously, a Philos Project could uh, occupy uh, an episode or more here. Um, but you published a couple pieces at Providence Journal, where you're a co-editor. Tell us a little bit about Providence, uh, where that came from, and uh, what your association is with uh, with that journal? Providence was founded shortly after I started the Philos Project, and I founded it together with the president of the Institute on Religion and Democracy, Mark Tooley. Right. And our shared realization was that before you even get to the Middle East or any of these very specific global issues, um, you have to educate Christians to think more carefully about the intersection of faith and politics, mm -hmm. of uh, values and interests. All of these upstream ideas that we really don't do a very good job of in the Christian world, whether evangelical or Catholic, although I would say the Catholics uh, do do a much better job. Mm -hmm. Providence is really trying to educate Christians on this intersection of, of faith and politics so that they can draw upon this, this well of historic Christian teaching and not have to reinvent the wheel or to mm -hmm. remain ignorant or to withdraw every time they're confronted with a really messy foreign policy issue. That's what Providence is all about. Yeah. I also commend Providence. It's a, you guys are doing in that journal what pretty much no, no one else is doing um, in the uh, kind of little orthodox Christian sphere, uh, right? So you're, it's, not, uh, it's not hawkish all the time, but it's also not uh, pacifist. And so you guys uh, really balance, mm -hmm. I think, a lot of different views um, and try to root it in, in theology and, and an understanding of Christian history and where it's been throughout um, not only domestic policy, but foreign policy throughout. So I'd commend that. Uh, links in the show notes again. Uh, you can find them at providencemag.com. So that gets us to our question, you have a couple articles, um, the latest of which, the second part of which uh, is titled Islam is Different and That's Okay. And uh, you might want to back up for us and or, or my, John might have an initial question for you um, what that was. You had an earlier article titled What Ilhan Omar's Israel Affair Can Teach Americans About Respecting Islam. And you got a little bit of pushback. Um, not surprisingly, and so we want to talk about that subject matter. So uh, what were you seeing um, that triggered your interest in writing those two articles? Well, in general, I would say that I've come to believe that so much of our debate about politics, both domestic 
and international are really veiled conversations about religion and culture. Mm -hmm. And we ourselves may not know that. We may be completely oblivious, in fact, to the modes that we're, that we're operating in. But when you take a step back and you look at who's arguing what, it's, it's actually fairly simple to see that people are making these arguments based on what they believe to be true about the world. And really, one of the things that I encounter quite a bit when it comes to American or Western engagement with the Middle East, and in particular, the Islamic world, is the problem of projection, right? Americans are very fond of uh, canvassing the world uh, with a mirror rather than going around the world looking through a window. We project ourselves, our identity, our culture, our history, the things that we think to be important on other people. Uh, we think that everybody wants to be like us or they should want to be like us. And we build our policy accordingly. And what I'm mm -hmm. saying in these two articles is that when it comes to the Islamic world, um, that may not be true and that probably isn't true. While there are people uh, both uh, in the Middle East and in the Islamic world more broadly who may like America, maybe even want to be like America, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone or even the majority of people living in that part of the world uh, see America as a model to be emulated. And so this there was a, 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 a public conversation about Ilhan Omar, uh, a congresswoman who had, uh, let's say, just say a run-in with the state of Israel over her position on boycotts and mm -hmm. sanctions related to settlements. You don't need to go into all of that, but sure. she was essentially blocked from entering the country by the Israeli government. And it was interesting to watch uh, different people come out on different sides of this issue. And what I did in this initial article was to write that, you know, you could read this entire uh, conversation as really a discussion about Islam, mm -hmm. uh, people who are very against Ilhan Omar um, had what what I think is, is sort of a, a subconscious or maybe even conscious negative view of Islam and, and vice versa. And so I wrote this article laying all of that out and then I wrote a follow-up based on some pushback that I got from a, a Palestinian Christian friend of mine. I mean, I read the initial article and uh, I mean, I, like I said, so where's this guy been my entire life? I mean, I don't, I think there's some, some key points here that I'm like, I, I wanna ask you some questions about, but the idea that Islam is different and that's okay is is um, it, just in itself is a, a thesis topic for 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 I think PhD students to focus on um, and uh, and practitioners and it, it, the, initially I said well you know there's the internal conflict within Islam right now um, that uh, that maybe we'll talk about in a minute but um, as I got into the article I felt that there was a, a it was a tremendously com tremendous compelling point um, because, like the Phylos project, Phylos project that you guys have, and 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 like the Providence magazine, the points you made, <clears throat> really engagement in the Middle East is not is not done correctly. Um, we're at the worst mm -hmm. religious freedom uh, that that uh, that in the last 20 years religious freedom is on the decline. Uh, you know, we have the Pew Pew stats of 80% of the world is is religiously persecuted. And and really, religious persecution is a sort of a, 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 a it's really a, a barometer of of how engagement is occurring between the the, the faiths and particularly, I think, Abrahamic faiths. Um, 
and so uh, I, 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 when I, when I popped into this article and and started reading it, I was like, wow, this guy's got something sexy here. The the challenge is is that when we get into the the bits and bobs here about some of the stuff like, you know, you know, their linkages with Christianity and Judaism, I'm like, okay, I gotta, especially the one part that I, I said the argument is simple. Uh, um, Islam is is not Hebraic because it, there's no place for the Hebrew Bible. Um, I, the, I I'd have a big question about that one because you know the Torah is a big part of of Islam. Um, um, it's one of the four books we're supposed to have, uh, and I know a lot of Muslims don't adhere to it. Uh, but uh, you're supposed to have Psalms. We're supposed to have the uh, Injal, the the Gospels. You guys call them mm-hmm. the Gospels, and then the Torah, and then the Quran. And we feel that the only and I don't, I'm not sure if the point was that we believe that the Quran is the only non-corrupted book. I think that's the point, right? Exactly. Yeah. Is that it? Is that because mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that's so you know it, it's like a, a shadow of what it used to be, you know. And then the Gospels are the same because they've edited elements. But is that is, is that the point you were trying to make? Yeah, that's and maybe exactly. we can get into it a little bit. No, I think you know what I've I've found, and look, a lot of these lessons I've. I've learned the hard way or sort of experientially, right? You know, coming in, having a lot of conceptions or, or misconceptions about how Christians and Muslims should in, interact and what the potential for commonality is. And, and, you know, you sort of run up against it in, in different ways as you do this sort of work. And I think that my point with that statement in particular was, right, notwithstanding the fact that that Muslims and even normative Islam may see these books as, um, important, even sacred, uh, in their initial deliverance to mankind, by now they've become, like you said, something of a, of a shadow of, of what they have what they were supposed to be. They've been corrupted, they've been whatever. So even though Muslims may look at them with respect, they don't look at them as sources of authority. And by the way, it's the same um, for Christians who are looking at, you know, rabbinic writings of Jews uh, written after the Old Testament, right? We may look at them and we may even study them in an effort to you know, see how different people interpreted these texts, but we don't we don't respect them in the same way that we respect the New Testament or or even the Old Testament. And that 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 belief that that location of authority in a certain text or set of texts, I think, matters in the way that we construct our cultures, right? So the point that I'm making is neither theological or legal in both of the articles, right? It's not necessarily right. a, a letter or, or, or an essay about uh, interfaith dialogue or, you know, which things should be banned by law or what things should be permitted. It's more of a, a cultural point to try to say that culture matters, religion is upstream of culture, and if you want to engage with cultures that are, are not your own, you need to have a certain amount of respect mm-hmm. for the fact that they may disagree with your culture on on some key points. And that's something I think is kind of obvious when you say it, but certainly when it comes to policymakers in the United States and many people who are well-intentioned in the realm of, of interreligious dialogue, um, these are novel concepts and actually things to be resisted almost, to say that something is different about this group or that group is for many people almost a heresy, right? Because you're trying to draw divisions uh, between different groups, and and that's and that's not okay. And what I'm saying is actually no, it is okay. Islam may in fact be different, just like any other major faith, and that's okay. We can we can be okay with that. We're not compromising anything. In fact, that's the best place to start uh, a real dialogue between these two groups. 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I emphatically agree. I mean, the the idea that Islam began in a uh, with a, a a remarkable degree of to- of tolerance toward other religions because it was revealed during a time where there was diverse religious traditions and institutions in Arabia, you mm-hmm. know, and and the 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 actual text, uh, so the or the Quran, you know, in 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 Surah three eighty four and and uh, Surah 544 and a few others that, uh, that, that I know off the top of my head, you know, two, uh, 256 and a few others, talk about how, you know, it's, it'll always, always exist, uh, Islam will always exist among other religions and, mm-hmm. and the idea of, uh, of not forcing belief and there's no compulsion in Islam and all this other business that, that is largely forgotten by my own tribe mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to um, engagement, recognizing the differences and everyone's place. Uh, I mean, I get a lot of heat when I say, I don't know, I, and I know Matthew gets upset when I say, when I go, well, you guys are a sect of, Islam, of, of Judaism, so are we, you know? So, uh, and, uh, and in my, among my own tribe, when I say we're a sect of Judaism, they go, everybody goes, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, so, oh, you, John, you, you know, and, and, and we, luckily we don't have, we can't get excommunicated. So, um, we don't have, you know, we don't have that stuff. So, uh, but, uh, but the point is, is that in the beginnings of the, of, 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 of Islam, there was a, a, a cherishing, uh, and, and, uh, and, and value put on, uh, both the Christian and the Jewish Jewish community as being a value to this collective culture, right. Mm. Uh, that was slowly moving into, or maybe radically moving into, uh, uh, uh Islam, a new religion, uh, and getting rid of the, you know, I, 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 idolatry, you know, the, the of, of, of all these other religions that were, they were following. So mm-hmm. I, I think that this, this article implicitly celebrates that, uh, uh, if not explicitly in, in how you, you sort of deconstruct, uh, the differences between us and you guys. Mm-hmm. Although the connection with Judaism make, makes me a little bit nervous. You know, the Christians and Jews like to hang out together, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just don't understand. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I always get, I, I'm, I'm not about mad about this, Matthew, about this. Like, I go, look, we're, we're close to you guys. We got Hazadisa. We got to Jesus. He's coming back at the end of days to open up a can on the, uh, on the Dajjal, you know, mm-hmm. on the Antichrist. With the Jews, the Jews don't have that. That makes us cousins, really close cousins. You know, we got that little sliver of the uh, crucifixion, but if we take that, and put it aside, we, we're 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 on point. You know. So, yeah. No, it's look. There there are certainly, and I and I knew even writing it. I think I was intentionally overstating the case a bit to to make a point. There are there are a number of things you could point out either between Christians and Jews or between Jews and Muslims or Christians and Muslims that are showing that are disproving in various ways the things that I'm saying. But I do think though um, that texts make a difference, and this is mm-hmm. this is a point I, I make, and I think in the in that second article is to say that you know it's very easy to come back at me and say. Well, look, you know, put, put aside the, the text for a moment. In practice, there's a lot of things that we share, and you're even mentioning some specific things in terms of, of doctrine, and I think that's true, but it's it's something about sharing these texts that you are drawing on, you know, quoting them. You don't find Islamic thinkers quoting from the New Testament in the same way that you find Christian thinkers over the years quoting from the Old Testament. Right. And it's that kind of shared, I don't know, cultural depository that that I'm arguing is making the difference when it comes to the formation of these two kind of giant world cultures. And there's tons of diversity within them, 
but that's that's kind of where I'm where I'm sticking, I guess you could say. I, I agree with you. I think that I mean, the last 80 years, there's just uh, one of the things that I'm passionate about is is uh, civil discourse, and there used to be a tradition in Islam where different sects of Islam would would converse uh, about their differences within their own religion. Uh, mm. And there's a book called uh, Peshawar Nights, and Peshawar Nights. I don't, have you I don't, have you read it? I don't no, know. No, never heard of it. Okay, so and there, well, there's 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 a good reason, right? Um, there used to be a tradition in Islam. It's an ancient tradition of of dialogue. A, a Sunni Shia or two Shia from different sects would mm. would meet up and they would they would discuss uh, the, their differences. And it wasn't whether you were right or wrong, but your ability to argue well. So mm. Peshawar Nights happens. It's somewhere in the turn of the 20s, return of the 20th century. And I think it's around 1917. A Sunni Shia meet up in uh, in uh, Peshawar. They have a disagreement and they said, let's make it interesting. So they, in Greek jury style, they openly discuss their uh, their their faiths and uh, and the differences. And there's really no conclusion uh, at the end. Um, and I would press anybody who wants to l learn a little bit about Islam just to read the first, the introduction, where everybody tries, to, both of them try to de demonstrate that they're Sayyids. Mm. Um, you know that they're they're that they're from the descendant of uh, mm. Muhammad. You know, and uh, and they do and they try to go through that. And it's really funny to a Muslim when you read through that how they're trying to go through their father's line, each <laughs> of them, and trying to demonstrate that they're somehow Sayyid than the other one, mm -hmm. uh, which is a common thing in in Islam. But these two Sunni and Shia discuss uh, over three days. Uh, they debate, and it it was scribed. There was it was transcribed by a number of scribes that were there, and it, the the product is Peshawar Nights. Mm -hmm. And uh, I argue that that's the last time this has ever happened, uh, in open forum recorded, because after that time, we have Wahhabism uh, and uh, extreme um, uh, political views that in that embed themselves in Islam, both on the Sunni and Shia side. And now you can't have these public discourse. You can't have mm -hmm. a Sunni and Shia discuss things because there's a guy waiting outside with an AK-47. Mm -hmm. Or you can have the discussion here in the West, but then your families get persecuted in country, right? Yeah. And so there's a, 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 a willingness on the Muslim side to sit at a dais with a Christian and a Jew and everybody else and be the sort of representative of Islam. But there's not a lot of intra- intrafaith dialogue going on to discuss the issues that speaks to, okay, where, where does the Torah, where does it f sit in Islam? How mm. come, you know, wh where, where is the connectivity within the gospels? Even though it's, let's just say it's corrupted. Okay, fine. We, let's pull something out of there, mm. you know, and let's, let's talk about that. And Matthew and I try to talk about it, but you know, I'm not a, I'm not, the, I'm not the best theologian in the world has. And, and so, um, you know, so, uh, but, uh, but I think, you know, more like the guy that has the umbrella hat that's preaching on the corner, you know? Mm. And so, um, but I think that, 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 uh, you, you make fair points about how we don't reference as Muslims different, the different texts that are out there and it's not active. It's very passive in our religion. Mm. Um, you know, Jesus, Isa has is like the uncle that's, that always bails you out. That always has the cash. That'll mm. always that'll that's always on call. But he's the guy that we don't really talk about. Who's down the road? You know what mm. I mean? Uh, and making the and making the connections are much more important. And celebrating the differences uh, yeah. are much more important. Uh, and that's what this this article I think brings out. Well, that's just to to follow up on that point. 
I think that's really what I want people to take away from this article. And what you're saying is very interesting about intra-Muslim debates and discussions and how those have, you know, fallen by the wayside over the years. I think that's the case across the board with all of our religious traditions. I mean, mm -hmm. we're living in an age yeah. now, certainly in the West and the United States, where to be different or even to allege that there's difference is just completely outside the pale of what's acceptable. Right? We can't even we can't even talk in those terms. Our impulse when we're all sitting on the dais is to say we're all the same. Look, apart from a couple of little things in your doctrine and mine, you know, it's it's just so we all love God and we all love people, and that's and and what I I'm trying to say with this article is that's not enough, and in fact, it's not the way the vast majority of the world thinks. These things, although they may seem strange or absurd or trivial, depending on who you are, things that other people believe actually make a world of difference. And if you're going in and your your impulse is to paper over those differences, you're going to be frustrated at every turn. It's much better to, to dive in and be like, okay, you know, what's what do you believe and how is that different from what I believe? And let's talk about that, whether it's intra-Muslim yeah. or intra-Christian or, or across religions. That's where we need to go, I think, in general, in the international religious freedom space and across across all of these spaces is just it's it's let's argue, let's talk about it, let's debate it, and let's do it in a civil manner and model that for other people around the world. I think that's absolutely the direction. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Robert. When I read your piece, uh, I uh, I'm kind of observing. You can respond to this to see if I'm reading it accurately. Uh, kind of what you were and John are talking about is there you're kind of positioned between two poles, right? There, there's the secular, um, kind of the secularist left that. Uh, either doesn't trust us to talk about religious um, uh, differences, and not, doesn't trust us to talk theology um, in the context of a multi-faith mm -hmm. uh, gathering. Um, and so to engage under their rules, we have to kind of only talk about quote unquote secular things and, and not talk about our deep differences on say mm -hmm. uh, the New Testament or Jesus. Uh, versus uh, another poll which um, is kind of ripe in this uh, nationalist uh, moment we're in where Islam mm -hmm. is so different um, as to be threatening. And so the impulse is to not listen and not talk and not engage and to just literally literally shut the country's doors um, mm -hmm. uh, to, to anybody who uh, shares that faith. Um, and then the, some of us here are like stuck in the middle saying, wait, wait, both of these are, are errant uh, and there's a better way. I see your pieces um, and frankly, the Philos Project kind of situated be somewhere between those two poles. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. No, and it, it's, you know, one of my good friends who's who's been very um, influential on me in D.C., I assume you probably both know him, Shadi Hamid at Brookings, who's been writing along similar veins and he's just sort of coming at this with a real third way mentality. And we sort of met up with each other and it was that, that same feeling, John, of wow, where, where have you been? Um, and I think that what we do at Philos is absolutely along the lines of trying to kind of mock it up, right? I mean, we, we lead a lot of trips over to the Middle East, whether it's to Israel and the Palestinian territories or Jordan or Egypt. And when we're in country, I make it my, priority to make everybody who's on this trip uncomfortable right we're meeting with <laughs> the 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 militant or the terrorist and the victim of the militant or the terrorist we're, we're meeting with government people and 
Muslims and Jews and Christians, right? And if if everybody on the trip is not completely uncomfortable at one point or another, then Philos hasn't done his job. And what comes out of that is hard to determine, right? I don't know at the beginning of the trip or any of these experiences what the end will be, but I know that we're, we're headed in the right path just by virtue of exposing people to things that they've never heard before and maybe things they, they don't want to hear. Yeah. It will stretch their brain and, and force them to think more carefully about what they believe. Because I think most people actually haven't thought that much about what they believe and why they believe it. And so challenging them in this way causes a certain amount of introspection that's that's very important. You know, my biggest thing is that, that you know, we're, we're we have the elders of international religious freedom, the elders of the religious freedom movement that have been, you know, the space is very small and it's nice to see some uh, on the Christian side, the, the, the not reinforcing the same narrative, the, the idea that, that there's, that there is a, it's okay to celebrate our differences that to someone else can, can be, we understand that there's, it's not an East West meets West and a clash of cultures in the sense that, uh, Fukuyama, who I think is was a, it was a terrible, terrible case that he makes about the clash of cultures, uh, and that we're not able to uh, reconcile each other. Therefore, one has to win. Um, and I think that this allows for uh, a, a a good argument of how we can start chipping away at at the negativity that surrounds. Uh, not only religious freedom, but re the, the religious engagement that happens, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 chips away at that that Pew study that says eighty percent of the world is religiously persecuted. Well, it's because we're trying to impose other values. We're trying yeah. to we're trying to put an overlay. Uh, you can't get around a collective culture uh, and and that mindset. I mean, I built a whole career of being one of the few people that translates Western concepts to collective cultures in Islamic context. That's my whole. Mm -hmm whole career and, uh, and, and, and the reverse. Uh, but there's, I'm a, I'm a minority, uh, and the rest of the people try are trying to put, uh, put to put this overlay. Uh, but it's not just, it's not just Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. In Islam, we have our own problems when it comes to recognizing the differences in the intrafaith community. And we have our own housekeeping to do. Um, I mean, I referenced the Amman message. I'm a big fan of the Amman conference mm -hmm. that happened in 2005. You know, my 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 tribe was not accepted into Islam until 2005. You know, so, you know, uh -huh. it's a, you know, so until July July 2005, July 2006, we were not considered part of the Ummah, mm. uh, and and something profound happened uh, in 2004, 2005, when the Oman conference conference was con was convened, where decided the the the, the Ummah, the religious scholars, the, the major sects of Islam, all came together and said, "This is mainstream Islam. These are the four, these are the four schools on the Sunni and Shia side. Uh, this is every this is mainstream Islam." Uh, they address terrorism. They address that the idea of these are the maxims in Islam. If you violate the maxims, then you, then you you're outside of Islam. Uh, all these other groups may be Muslim, but they're on the fringe because they're not mainstream. Mm. And and uh, it's a it's a profound moment in in Islam, but it was never capitalized on, which is what I'm trying to do with my career. I spent ten years just trying to engage all the different participants uh, on the interfaith level, um, and. Uh, and so your article and so what you're doing in Providence and uh, and Philos uh, Philos Philos I think is uh, is is 
addressing this from the other side, the same pond but different beach, you know, on the Christian side, because there's mm -hmm. an interfaith component, I think, within your own tribe. But sure. then, but then there's people like me that read this and go, oh, this guy's okay. It's this, here's here's how evangelicals thinking a bit, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think it's one of it's it's important that you and people like you, John, are doing the work that you are doing. And it's it's one of the things that you know I find extremely hopeful. Any any person of any religion who's looking back on his own community and, and being critical and pushing and trying to move things forward, I think is deserving of respect. But it's especially important in the Islamic context because I find so many people who are not Muslims who, you know, when I ask them, what do you do or, or what are you into? <laughs> they tell me things like, well, you know, I'm really in interested in reforming Islam. <laughs> and I, you know, my follow-up question is, well, tell me exactly how do you, you know, a Baptist from wherever plan on reforming Islam and what does that even mean, <laughs> right? So I think that just right off the bat, when you acknowledge that these are different communities moving in different worlds with their own vocabularies and all of that, you, you actually open up space, space for people within these communities to do the work that only they can do, right? I can't do it. You can do it, but I can't do it. No, I think that's a fair point. I mean, I think we're just, you know, and we're, we're it's a growth industry. There's not a lot of people out there. So, <laughs> so you know, it's, I, you know, after the, your, the, the Philos project, you know, you, you're, you're, you're quarter, get a cornering the market right at the right time, you know? So, uh, and I think it's fair to say that the, you know, it's a lot of thought leadership is coming out of, out of New York these days, you being a New Yorker, me being a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. So, I, uh, you know, I, um, <laughs> as a little plug for, for, uh, cause I know that, I know that poor, poor Matthew's on his heels and that with, we, we <laughs> yeah, two Yorkers on. And, uh, but, um, but I, I do think that there's a, 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 the space is, is sparse when it comes to clarifying the differences and mm. not only that, making it into like, like, I, I know what you're trying to do. And there's a little hyperbole in your article, um, you know, and I'm sitting there going, oh, we, we're, we're with the Jews too. What are you talking about? You know, they killed your guy, you know, so I don't <laughs> understand why you're so close to him, you know? <laughs> You know, so and and conveniently they, you you know they disappeared around eighty when seventy when when the Romans, you know when the Romans destroyed uh you know Israel so conveniently you they become rabbinic and you guys get you know Paul who's just you know, kind of making it up as he goes along, <laughs> um but, but so so you lose the center you know so you guys could go and do whatever you want so I understand that that the convenience of the of linking yourselves to the. Uh, to the to, to the uh, to the Jews, but then there's also a cl very clean break that happens when it becomes a a a, 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 a Gentile uh, diaspora movement. Sure. Uh, <laughs> and and then it, you guys become free from the sort of uh, from the Sanhedrin because I know that Paul had to go back and reaffirm at least two or three times that he was adhering to Abrahamic law because he was kind of going off the rails there. You know he. And, <laughs> Yeah, well, from their perspective, sure. He, from my perspective, he was he was very much on the rails. But you know, that's that's just me. You're, you're yeah, getting I mean, a snippet of uh, of some banter that John and I have often off mic about the Apostle Paul. So we'll have to get into that in a different episode. Paul is, but listen, this is just it's a glimpse. Not just Christians and Muslims fighting about Paul. It's it's Christians and Jews, as you can imagine. I yeah. mean, there's there's a whole literature of Jewish writers saying, look, everything was everything was working just fine until until Paul came along. He yeah. just hijacked the whole project. So Robert, I got a question for you, kind of big picture, uh, looking at American Christianity and kind of defining that as broadly as you want. American Christianity's view of and engagement 
on Islam, but I want to get your uh, reaction to a few bullet points out there that I see kind of in proximity to your article. Uh, so we had your couple articles at Providence. Within a month or two, Desiring God posted an article by uh, a Houston pastor in Afshin Ziafat, um, who is a, a Muslim convert to Christianity. Title is, I Was a Misunderstood Muslim. Uh, and then over at Providence, our friend Tim Scheiderer has a review mm-hmm. of, um, of uh, Abraham Kuyper's engagement um, of Islam. Kuyper wrote a book called On Islam. Uh, and then uh, a while back, about a year ago, uh, Acton Institute published a book review of the same book on Islam by Abraham Kuyper, written by uh, a Muslim scholar who is engaging Kuyper as a Christian engaging uh, Islam. Uh, those were just some high points. And then uh, uh, my friend Micah Fries, um, who's a pastor in Chattanooga, has written a book on Islam in North America, uh, predominantly for a Christian audience that Frankly, you know, he's he's still a white Christian, you know, talking about Islam, which isn't necessarily the first place to go for uh, such opinions, but uh, it's taking a different tact than we've seen over the last couple of decades. So we're approaching two decades after 9-11 when uh, Islam, global Islam, really kind of impinged itself on on the American conscience. Is that evidence of a positive movement um, of engagement mm. um, by Christians uh, to the Islamic world and by positive engagement, I don't mean uh, affirmation of theology or anything, but kind of shaking off the 24 uh, seven cable news space. of that's all you hear about is terrorism and the link between Islam and terrorism kind of all the time in, in perpetuation. Uh, mm. What's your response to all that? Where do you see American Christianity and its engagement of Islam? Well, that's a very big question. I would say that overall there's been, much more engagement than you know in the last 20 years than in the 20 years prior unfortunately much of that was prompted by 9-11 right yeah. until 9-11 most americans christians or otherwise weren't thinking that much about islam yeah. uh, and afterward we were forced to you know answer these questions why do they hate us why is iraq behaving differently than japan did after the second world war or you know what you know how do you root out radicalism whatever that means yeah. but if you go if you zoom out even further you'll you'll realize and you mentioned kuiper that you know islam has been a topic of christian conversation for over a millennia right ever since the 7th century christians starting with the syriac and the orthodox churches um, in the Middle East and, and then branching out um, beyond, we've been dealing with Islam really as maybe the, the world's greatest theological challenge. And yeah. Christians have been debating the Jews, Judaism. John, you mentioned some of the theological tensions with the Jews, and I think the Jews have been maybe the most consistent theological challenge or, or complexity of Christianity, trying to figure out, okay, where do they fit? But Islam, just by virtue of its size and the numbers of people and the speed with which it spread over such a large part of the globe presented Christianity with a real um, a real challenge, right? It forced Christians to think more carefully about their faith, what is different about our faith from Islam, et cetera. And you have people, not only Kuiper, but Erasmus wrote on Islam and, and lots of other people as well. So I think that, you know, 9-11 sort of brought that conversation back to the fore. And in the beginning, it was very much a geopolitical conversation, right? It was, mm-hmm. you know, how do we fix Iraq? How do we do what we want to do in Afghanistan? But as those endeavors uh, failed and 
flopped kind of in a big way, I think everybody started to realize, you know, maybe it goes deeper than that. Maybe this is about more than just, you know, propping up a new democracy in Mesopotamia. Maybe there are cultural and religious currents that we should be navigating as we do this sort of work, which ultimately brought the question back into the theological realm, right? And you have people uh, like, uh, you know, people had desiring God and, and, and others who are weighing in um, in a Christian way. And I think at this point, especially as you see the the whole conflict in Europe between you know Muslim immigrants and the the white European natives I think those theological conversations are going to become sharper and sharper and what I would say that my last point is that <clears throat> what I fear is and I see this happening in different ways around the west what I fear is that in reaction to the Islamic challenge Christians will return not to Christianity, but to a cultural Christianity, yeah. just um, just in order to, you know, just reacting to the other. Okay, so if they're Muslims and they're coming into my country, so that must mean that I'm Christian and I need to I need to reassert, you know, the Christian civilization that made this country great. Okay. Now that impulse is valid, right? And and I and I understand it, but what happens is if it's not if it's not a true return to Christianity, right, to the spirit of Christianity, the message of the gospel, and it's only superficial, it's only about culture, it's only about, you know, the cathedrals we built and the works of art that we painted, then you start getting into that territory that sparked the Crusades, right? And what I fear now is, as this conversation has returned to the realm of theology and religion, that it won't go all the way, that it won't really be immersed in a a, a sort of Jesus-centric uh, conversation about Islam and sort of the other writ large, but it becomes much more political and much more uh, divisive in that way. And so, and I, I think Europe is really ground zero for this. And time will tell, you know, which yeah. way the Europeans go on this question. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. I think that yeah, I always get into the business, you know, the business of counterterrorism, the business of of uh of religious freedom and uh and the religion movement and religious engagement but particularly counterterrorism you know we just had the attack that happened in in pensacola we mm -hmm. just had the attack that happened on london bridge right and uh and the the you notice there's there's no the counterterrorism experts never had any foresight about 9 11 but they all but but a lot of experts come out of 9 11 and then after every attack they say something right mm -hmm. they, and and those counterterrorism experts are involved more in the business of capitalizing on 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 what's going on w with mm. with the, the differences in these in our religions in our cultures, the idea that there you know you're talking about the, the politicalness and the, dis the divisiveness, uh, I always kind of say look we have to be more thoughtful in how we engage the Muslim community, um, and and I and, and with my own community I don't I don't consider myself a counterterrorism expert I don't use that title I think it's very pejorative. But for 20 years, I've been I've been working on security, uh, education, and ec economic development and governance, which are the which is the only way. Uh, if you put mm. money in people's pockets, you educate them about other their own faith and and other faith, and 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 then give them a living uh, and provide a, sec a secure environment. They're not going to be terrorists. Mm. Uh, uh, I always talk about how my 
my uh, when I was in in Afghanistan for two years, I had my my the security guys that everybody used were getting paid four or five hundred a month. Uh, Daesh was paying a thousand, eight hundred, a mm. thousand. It's a, it was an economic issue, mm. uh, and these guys weren't radicals. They just had to put food on the table. So, um, and it was because their loyalty to me that they stayed with me. But here we have this, something like with the London attack, and they're talking about the de-radicalization program and how it didn't work. Um, and I'm wondering who came up with that de-radicalization program, you know? And and yeah. and and you know, it, it, you have stuff like 5,000 people going through it in the last, in, you know, in these in a couple of years. And I'm sitting there going, well, this there's no thoughtful engagement and the ability to say, okay, we we're not gonna we're not going to we're going to recognize the differences we're going to figure out what they are we're going to have a thoughtful take some time to figure out the right matrix and what is actually going on as opposed to bringing counterterrorism experts in that are capitalizing on this political mm. and divisiveness right um and maybe creating another problem which as we can see here is a, is an issue just with the london bridge attack but um i don't know i, may, I hope i made a, a decent argument there or, or but uh, mm -hmm. but the point is is that i think it speaks to your point which is the struggle that i've been through going through my entire life uh is is making sure that there's it's a long game not a short game you know oh, yeah and uh and it's amazing that 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 you're doing what you're doing because no there's virtually no one else doing this we ha we're working with the elders of of the religious engagement and a lot of them are good people but there needs to be some new ideas infused into what's going on right now and this uh this article you know sparks some of those questions so it's it's uh i, pre I appreciate you doing it you know thank you well, Robert, we are up against the clock. Uh, I know you've got other things to go with. We appreciate your time to visit with us on Crossing Phase. Uh, this show will be available, obviously, at crossingphase.com. Numerous show notes, including uh, Robert's articles and information about the Philos Project and a number of resources that John mentioned will be at crossingphase.com. Uh, Robert, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for your time and expertise and uh, for bringing this perspective to us. Well, thank you both, and really best of luck on this really important project. It's great. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. This has been Crossing Phase with Matt Hawkins and John Penna, a podcast of Roll Top Productions. If you like what you hear and would like to help defray the cost of the show, consider sponsoring us on Patreon by visiting crossingphase.com. Crossing Phase is available on all your favorite podcast outlets, including iTunes, Google Podcast, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. We'd appreciate your review of our program, especially in the iTunes store. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at MTHawk, at JT Pinna, or at Crossing Phase. Music for this episode is courtesy Vajra, whose music is available at thevajratemple.com, Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon. Show notes for this episode and more are available at crossingphase.com. <laughs>